I'm Christopher Biden, and this is Open Source. In the eerie glow of artificial intelligence this time, we're humbled, we're also scared by the power of chatbots like GPT-4 to do pretty much everything that word people have ever done, but faster and maybe more to the point. The twist in this conversation is that our guests are professional humanists, guardians and teachers of the hard-earned old wisdom of books, not machines. And the double twist that they want to argue is that the enemy here is not evil AI, it's us who have enfeebled the old culture to a vanishing point in the practice of our politics, our media, our most expensive elite universities. Robert Pogue Harrison, you are our Dante scholar at Stanford, our professional humanist, and our West Coast friend in smart podcasting. Of course, we asked ChatGPT about you and your voice, Robert. We got the instant answer that your voice has a certain mellowness and introspection that go with your keen ear for language and ideas. Anna Ilyevska, initials AI, you're Robert's colleague from Europe in humanistic studies at Stanford. I'm drawing on a startling conversation that you just published in that podcast entitled Opinions, where you both defended AI as a wake-up call, maybe in the nick of time to rescue humanity, human stewardship, human culture, from its corrupted condition. You both said you expect your students to use AI and to learn from it. Learn just what, Robert? When I said that it may be coming at the right time in our cultural history, I said that in a mode of despair, because hmm. prior to its advent, the quality of writing among students, the quality of thinking, the complete fracturing of consciousness in the general um, public as a result of things like the internet, social media, iPhones, and so so forth, had gotten us to a point that we're going to have to be rescued by something. And why not GPT, artificial intelligence programs? I'm not sure that Anna actually agreed with that, but I'll let her speak for herself. So somehow every time we have a major advancement in technology, the questions about what it means to be human really resurface. So this is how I see this latest development. Um, what I see in this conversation is that technology is becoming an ever sharper mirror of ourselves. And you asked before, uh, what is the difference between, for instance, the moment now and say the industrial revolution or the agrarian revolution, right? Well, the difference is that up until the mid 20th century or even the late 20th century, our machines were very different from us. Right. Our technology was just not our essence. Currently, however, with ChatGPT and these large language models who are learning themselves, they are more and more similar to, to ourselves. So this is why now we have to really train engineers and train students in general to understand human nature and to think in terms of human nature even more in order to understand machines and vice versa. What do you see in that mirror, though, Robert? It has a number of different dimensions to it. On the one hand, I have, um, again, going back to my pessimism about the way cultural memory has suffered, you know, near catastrophic losses of late. And one thing about the way the technology works is that it has access to the entire archive of human cultural production. Mm -hmm. So if nothing else, it's a memory, even if it's an artificial memory. And that kind of reassures me that at least the whole story is not going to be forgotten for good. And even though we may disagree about the way the technology accesses and reconfigures and resynthesizes this history of human cultural production, at least it is within this larger unfolding of human civilization. We're in the same ballpark with AI. I'm not optimistic. I would never be optimistic about artificial intelligence, but it doesn't cause me a great deal of despair. What do we see in AI? I think really we see everything. We see our worst fears, 
We see our anxieties. We see our good parts as well because ChatGPT, for instance, in these large language models are, as you say, Robert, precisely based on language. They're based on the archive of human knowledge. So what we get back is exactly a mirror of ourselves. I like to think of the metaphor uh, in terms, you know, we're scholars of literature, to think of uh, Dorian Gray and uh, his uh, the portrait locked up in the attic, right? We are Dorian Gray and our technologies are the portrait that we seek to lock up, to contain, because... It contains in itself all the resources and all the good and bad things of humanity. I'd like you to be more specific about what we see in terms of other things that worry us, the increasing inequality of our whole society, our whole world, our whole idea of of human beings, our untamed war hunger, for example, our elitism, our greed, perhaps. Robert? The death drive that Freud talked about is the most worrisome thing about artificial intelligence from what I can tell because it can easily be enlisted for the purposes of destruction. And the reason it's worrisome is not because of the death drive. We've been living with the death drive since we became a species and God knows how much destruction has resulted from it. But what is worrisome with AI is that it, it may take control if it becomes an autonomous system so that our own human agency is somehow left on the sidelines while we witness certain kind of destructive behaviors. And also, as you're, as you're worried about, exasperating social inequalities and income inequalities and the difference between the elite. And In other words, we've been moving for a long time, in my view, at least with, through technology, to a division between what you might call the mortals and the immortals ordinary people and then those who somehow are the extravagant beneficiaries of a system that favors a very few over the many. And I worry what kind of gods AI is going to create and empower. What kind of gods will it promote? I'm afraid that it's going to promote gods who are wholly self-centered, who have lived a lifetime the way a lot of rich people live a lifetime accustomed to giving orders and having their orders obeyed by servants and chauffeurs and so forth. But from what I can tell, chat GPT is excellent at flattery. It knows how to flatter the user. It's designed yeah. to flatter the user. And so this whole ideology of self-love, which is an, something that's being promoted Mm-hmm. you know, by people as a therapy. I think that self-love is the essential currency of AI. And in, in that regard, the gods that will be created will be such self-loving gods that it's going to be the, the, the contrary of a certain concept of, you know, the Christian god of agape. Yes. That god is completely other-oriented towards humans, evacuates himself, the kenosis, becomes human himself out of a kind of love of humankind. You know, self-love and the common good, I don't think, conjugate very well. Mm -hmm. It reminds me, in a way, of advertising writ infinitely more powerful, flattering you all the time and pushing itself. Let me throw out two other fears that I have about AI. One is that, as you suggested, it's self-improving. It's developing itself all the time. It's critical of itself in ways that we are not. We don't learn from our Vietnams not to go into Iraq. We, we, we repeat, AI is different, but it could also teach us possibly how not to repeat our worst mistakes. Another fear for me is that vast numbers of people, conceivably a majority, are willing to let go of the rough edges of our flawed humanity in favor of the accuracy, the speed, uh, the, the charm, in a way, of perfect thinking in the AI. So I, I would respond to this in the following way. Um, there is an idea, as you said, that we want to perfect the human mind. The problem precisely is that human beings are fallible. And Chomsky wrote about that recently in the New York Times, that precisely this fallibility is what distinguishes us from AI, right? So we are, in a way, bad robots. And why are we bad robots? Because we have this ability to think. And this thinking ability is uh, both extremely revolutionary, but it's also a great inconvenience. It can also make us subject to manipulation. So this cannot be really kept in check by any kind of ideologues, right? So this is the problem. Now, to respond to your previous question, you said, what does AI really tell us now about inequality, about our untamed war hunger, about elitism? Well, what it tells us... uh, 
at least in my opinion, is that we have a very strong lack of values currently. We have no common norms necessarily that we all share as a species so that we can orient ourselves in this world. So it's kind of bringing us towards what some philosophers in Europe now are calling new realism. It's forcing us to really come together mm. again and agree on what things we can come around together, right? And then another question that I really liked how you phrased it, Robert, about narcissism. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this pro uh, problem, especially because it seems to be the plague of our generation. Everyone is speaking about narcissism now. Nowadays. Well, how does that happen? Right. So here's here is my take on the on the issue. Narcissism comes about when uh, the human mind is left idle, when it's left into a kind of condition of self cannibalization. And this is exactly what Hannah Arendt was saying about thinking. She was saying that the human mind can take hold of reality and distorted for us. This is why when we are confronted with a life of leisure, where we have all of our machines doing the major labor for us, we simply do not know what to do with our free time. Mm. We procrastinate and we become self-involved. This is the birth of narcissism. We have more leisure, our machines are more and more intelligent and they're taking uh, over more and more of our daily uh, laborious tasks. But what do we do with, with the rest of the time? We are self-obsessed. Right. So this is something that I think, especially such a such a technology as generative AI right now is making us really understand clearly. So now the task is how to cultivate the sense of thinking. Where is the space for thinking in the world? How do we do that at the university? Uh, what does it require? This is something where I think as, as a species, really, we, we need to bring back, so to say, into the conversation. Let's stick with this matter of thinking. To me, one of the most entertaining things about the whole AI story is what it's telling us about the way we think. We grew up on William James. We're just talking about it in our last podcast about embodied thinking, how it works. William James loved the idea that there's no such thing as a thought. There is only you thinking. And Anna's thinking is different from Robert's, different from mine, different ancestry, different biology, but also different experience, different goals. I hear lots of people now in AI talking about embodied thinking in that sense, as a, almost a biological process. But I don't understand how we can call AI thinking if it has no body and has none of those variations of, of personal history built into it. Embodied thinking doesn't mean that we just that we just have our mind housed within our body and somehow we create thought, but it involves, for instance, context. It involves other people. To, to, be, to have an embodied thought, it means you react to your environment. So context, other people, the environment, culture, genetics, experience, world. We are in a way minded animals, right? And this is what this is Marcus Gabriel's term. And even if I can quote a colleague of ours, Tom Sheehan, he says that we're minding animals, animals that mind the world. So that's embodied thinking. It's not just a combination of robotics and artificial intelligence. Thinking is a form of attention at its best. And what it means to pay attention is not an easy question to answer. Attention is also a tending to. It's a extending of oneself, as Anna was suggesting. A, a, minded, a minded thought is, is one that extends into the world. It's in touch with the world. It is a being in the world. You suggested it yourself there, Chris, when you talked about not only biology, but... Um, you know, ancestry and the people you know and, and the, the whole tapestry within which one particular individual does his or her thinking. Um, mm -hmm. And yet there's a mysterious source to thought. Thoughts come from different sources and only a few of them come from within ourselves, even as embodied individuals. For the most part, nature does most of my thinking for me. <laughs> If I don't go out into the natural world, you know, periodically and occasionally, I lose access to a kind of thought process mm -hmm. that actually has its source, you know, outside of my, either my brain or even my embodied mind. Robert, you like to speak of the underworld of the dead as a source of your own thinking, meaning not only classical thought, but also you mentioned D.H. Lawrence's poem called Thought. He defined it in one line as the welling up of unknown life into consciousness, only to say it's a deeply complex, mysterious process, and how in the world can GPT be relied on to 
to imitate its richness. Okay, just to be provocative, you could say that GPT is, in a certain sense, in dialogue with the dead. Because every time you ask it a question, and it's looking for the probable answer, it goes into all these uh, archives that come mostly from dead philosophers or thinkers or writers and so forth. Of course, that's not the, the underworld uh, of the dead that I that I th I think is most essential, where we commune, we have conversations with authors when we read a book. Reading is a form of thinking. It's also a form of receiving the thought of others. And how we metabolize the thinking that comes to us from books into the th thinking that we ourselves do is uh, a largely mysterious process. Mm -hmm. When D.H. Lawrence speaks about the welling up of, of things into the unconscious, that w notion of welling up also has a metaphor of a spring of water yeah. sources. And, you know, when, when we think of rivers, we think of what we see with our eyes as rivers coursing through a land. But uh, the more one knows about the hydro cycle, you know that underneath every river is a much vaster underground river. Beneath it and laterally on either side of it, the underworld rivers of Lethe, the Acheron, Cocytus, Styx, these rivers that lead into Hades, into the world of the the shades are the ones that um, I think that thinkers uh, regularly traffic in order to uh, go to the source from which things are welling up into consciousness. And therefore, I would open up and invite, you know, the, the hosts, the untold ghosts of the, of the dead into uh, our conversation. <laughs> we all seem to be looking for metaphors in this maturing AI, the sun, rivers, is it the birth of fire? Is it a Manhattan Project? Is it an earth-killing meteor? Is it impending extinction? What's your, what, what's your metaphor of, of this, this moment in time? I don't remember, I can't imagine anything quite like it. It's much bigger than, say, the telephone, or is it as big as the invention of language, of, of written language? Well, my personal metaphor is a genie in a bottle. I think that's what ChatGPT and uh, generative AI are doing for us. They fulfill certain kind of wishes for us. They answer questions as long as they're for formulated right in, in, in language. So that would be my metaphor. I am in general quite uh, averse to speaking in terms of catastrophic metaphors, such as the Manhattan Project um, or any kind of more catastrophic metaphors. We want something more constructive, something that will allow us at least to to have the sense of control over this, over this phenomenon. Think about permanent shaping and reshaping of human character, values, human nature. What's as big as this? The wheel, the telephone, the iPhone? Find a place for it. That's a tough one, Chris. You know, we live in an age that I would call polyneistic. Throughout the long course of human history, there have been these mononeisms, namely one big invention like the wheel or the discovery of fire, the printing press. And these one single momentous revolutions, they had a long time to uh, become par part of the fabric of human society. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, I think in the 20th century, above all, we go into this delirious syndrome of polyneisms where you have... From air, you know, from air travel to the invention of the birth control pill to the invention of, of you know, the, the washing machine, there's, there are, there's a historian who argues very um, credibly that the biggest invention in human history has been the washing machine because it's liberated <laughs> women from the labor of having to wash things. And you yes, think this about is why I can be here today. That's right. So, and, and like that, then we get into the post-war period with, again, the internet, the iPhone, social media, all these things are fast and furious one after the other. Mm -hmm. And GPT is, is, is the newest thing. I'm reluctant to make any um, prognosis. Why? Absolutely. It's because then I'm being very timely in the Nietzschean sense. And what I fear about, the reason I did, even, did not even want to do a show on artificial intelligence on uh, my own podcast was that in two months from now, it's going to sound obsolete, most likely, yeah. because what we will have learned in two months is going to render all our speculations perhaps a little bit um, uh, quaint. Yeah. 
I completely agree. Yes, I see the source of the current period in the 19th century, and I think we're just living one big period of constant transformation. I think, Robert, you said it really accurately. This is why it is not very wise to make these extreme predictions, but just see the phenomenon, be ontological in this sense, be realistic, see what it can do and how we can work with it, uh, at least at this point, right? Robert, could I ask you, where is the rest of Stanford in these all these dilemmas? We think of Stanford as sort of Harvard West, for and by and of the elites, and sometimes as the frontal lobe of Silicon Valley. I mean, what are you learning from looking at your own students, your own campus? Stanford has this need to feel that everything it's doing is, is, is in the name of the good, and that all the kind of research that is coming out of this university is somehow um, angelic in mm. nature. Mm-hmm. And it has a terrible time acknowledging you know, the devil in its own midst, which is this highly intensified research into the genome, into you know nanotechnology, into everything that can can go right into the codes of nature and rewrite it as if we were the gods of the whole of all of creation. And when it comes to artificial intelligence, Stanford has been at the cutting edge of that for a long time. It always is telling you what good it can do. And with always the warnings, we want to make sure we humanize, we want to make sure that we don't lose control of it and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I, Mm -hmm. frankly, get a little tired of the bad faith with which institutions consistently, you know, forget the first principle of the Hippocratic Oath, which is to do no harm. And you can tell me as much as you want that well, think of the children that we can save by making this happen and make that. Yeah, well, tell me that after you tell me what harm you're going to do by it. Broadly, you're saying that Stanford is on board and that they're going to make a, a virtuous effort with this, this phenomenon. Stanford will never say no to any new technology. It will never say no. It will only wow. put up a, a veneer of having humanistic concerns that it be used in the proper way. Now, using technology in the proper way is always promoting the technology. That, that was my experience also at Stanford. I just arrived here from the University of Chicago two years ago, and the University of Chicago is a very humanistic-centered university, and Stanford is quite the opposite of that. But what I experienced is precisely that, that uh, there is a veneer of goodness, of wanting to do good, but actually on the field, on the ground, very little is happening. For instance, the division here between the humanities and the sciences is enormous. We are still living in the era of Aldous Huxley, and the two cultures are very, very vividly uh, represented here. But students, the students are quite brilliant. They are very eager. They are thirsty for knowledge, for humanistic knowledge. They come to my classes, which are very small seminars. We're lucky in the Italian department, right? If we get 15 students, that's or 10 even, that's very nice. They come to, the, to our classes. They are happy. They discuss. They think. They feel stimulated. And then they go on to become what I think is just better, better people, also better engineers. And their biggest complaint is usually these 300 people classes that are taught by star professors in computer science and that are uh, uh, purportedly supposed to teach them some ethics, right? How do you teach 300 people ethics? You don't teach ethics. You allow people to discover it, right? Ethics begins in the individual mind. It begins in the discussion with others in the practice of judgment. It cannot just be imposed into a curriculum as a sidekick, so to say, to, to, the, to the scene mm. of, of computer science. So that has been my experience. But there is a lot of desire among students who, again, are just brilliant here at Stanford. And we need to reform the curriculum to respond to those desires. Because as I said earlier, the more the machines that we make become like us, the more imperative it is that we train people in studying human natures, because this is the way to understand their own creations. Robert, you referred in your podcast to a new great awakening. There have been a number of great awakenings in American history, always combining some sort of religious and economic and political rising of resilient spirit. And if there was ever a time for one, it's now, you'd say. I wonder if AI is going to put it back to sleep or, or promote it. A general revival of energy, confidence, forward-mindedness. I would hope that that would be the case. What worries me above all, Chris, is not artificial intelligence. It's the failing intelligence 
of our fellow human beings <laughs> at every level, mm-hmm. beginning with the political. I mean, there's some kind of insanity that is taking over the whole institutional infrastructure of American society, if not world society. And I think there's such an inability to think clearly and distinctly that is becoming really, a, a, it's a pandemic mm-hmm. of thoughtlessness. What are your favorite examples of that? Well, I look at our United States Congress, for example, and I think that there are more rather than less congressmen who understand the essence of the American system of government Hmm. and of the Constitution. So you have this system where our founding fathers were like mature adults with their understanding and their greater wisdom, and that we've had the luxury of allowing ourselves to become infantilized Mm -hmm. as politicians. We have a system of government that works so efficiently on its own that we can put children in office and we have not yet self-destructed. But the childishness, the political immaturity, the behavioral immaturity at the political level, not to even mention the social level Mm -hmm. and even media, I think it all is pointing to this catastrophe that Hannah Arendt drew attention to, which is a thoughtlessness Mm -hmm. and an inability Mm. to think. What's your favorite example, Anna? Well, there are a couple of examples. The first one is just a very clear difference in maturity between students that are now in college and students that were in college just over 10 years ago, right? They seem much more incapable now of dealing with the real world. So this is one perhaps more superficial criticism. The more the stronger criticism that I would have, and I think many of our colleagues would agree with this, is simply with the university culture. And I can only comment on the university because uh, I'm not very familiar with American public discourse. But the university currently has become, so to say, a place of stock phrases of reliance on acceptable norms and behavior. We question very little, although we say that we question everything. Critical thinking um, currently does not really take place to the degree that I think Robert and I both have in mind it should take, right? That will be kind of my more my more vocal criticism. And I would like to quote some uh, a, a philosopher here who is a very dear to my heart because I'm from the former Yugoslav Republic uh, of Macedonia. So in uh, in the 60s in Yugoslavia, there was this uh, school of thought called the Praxis Group. And one of the foremost philosopher, Mihailo Markovic, uh, who fought with Tito uh, against the fascists, right? And then he was one of those people who also supported Tito when he detached himself from Stalin. Uh, Mihailo Markovic writes, intellectuals must take the liberty of critical thinking instead of waiting for an enlightened power that will kindly invite them to think freely. There's a fear of free thinking and of censorship. Another thing that concerns me greatly, Chris, is the sensitivity editors Mm -hmm. at newspapers and at publishers, where now there's such a concern to have um, certain words taken out of circulation so that all the classics are being revised in order to take out words like fat and ugly and let alone more offensive words. So on the one hand, they think they're doing it, you know, to spare emotional pain for the readers. On the other hand, what they're doing is giving a sense that history never had these blemishes in the past and that people didn't use the N-word and they never uh, demeaned a woman or, 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 uh, you know, a gay person or thing. And therefore it's sanitizing history. So well that that is another way in which free free thinking mm-hmm. cannot really take place unless we have the courage first thing to acknowledge, you know, all the horrors of the human condition and and the human past and the wars and the violence and and um, mm-hmm. uh, and stop pampering ourselves. This pampering is also no good for thinking. Yeah. In the face of the in, incalculable power of these bots, I'd like you to remind us both of you, of a notion of human nature that's beyond cognitive capacity, a definition of of humanity, humanism, that includes our physical nature, our lived experience, our contradictions, which probably 
AI doesn't have, but our pain, our inadequacies, our emotional and our irrational selves. I, I'm really wondering, does the very idea of self disappear in an AI world? What, what is the AI world missing about what we, what we treasure about our species? Well, what it might be missing is Sophocles' Ode on Man, which defines, it's a famous ode about, uh, there is much that is strange in the world, but nothing stranger than man. And then it goes on to describe mm. just how unearthly and out of place, out of <laughs> mm -hmm. ill at home, the human is on earth. And we are always self-transcending, suggesting that we don't know who we are. And that there is no self that we can retreat to as a homeland because we're always outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, in the midst of the strange. And that is an experience of terror on the one hand because it's we don't know what to expect. And we, as the Ode on Man suggests in Sophocles' Antigone, we dare to become violent in the midst of the overwhelming. Now, anyone who would dare to be violent in the midst of the overwhelming is capable of anything. We, we have been capable <laughs> of almost anything so far. Mm -hmm. So I think if we begin with the assumption that there is, we do not know who we are and that we're always beyond ourselves and it, that if the only place to make ourselves at home is in our own estrangement. Wow, that's a marvelous answer to my question. I'd like you both to invent some spaces, some forums, virtual, classroom, you name it, but places where talking and listening and arguing and agreeing, but where reading and writing uh, could come alive again with that, with that complexity and that fun, maybe in journalism, maybe in floor of the Senate debates, maybe in community forums, town meetings, maybe in some sort of new media. What's the place to regain that wonderful strangeness? The problem seems today that we are fundamentally distracted and the etymological meaning of distraction is, is that we are drawn apart away from ourselves right through. We are distracted by entertainment, media, other people, uh, sports, uh, all sorts of issues currently just that draw us apart, further apart from ourselves so that we're not any more capable of being together with ourselves. We are alone with ourselves, right? This is the definition of sol of loneliness is that we are alone with ourselves. But we want to kind of transition to a togetherness with ourselves where we can accept uh, the other voice that we hear in our own brains and make friends uh, with himself. And where do I think this could take place? Well, I'm in no way... Uh, for the dissolution of the major institutions. I think they are, uh, they have a reason for existing and I am a firm believer in the project of the university. It just needs to be adapted. So for me, the place where this bringing together recomposition of the self and of public discourse can happen in the classroom because it is the place where we have small situations of, of very few people discussing with one another, perhaps joined together around an artistic object such as a novel or a poem or, or an artwork where we can really hone our skills of judgment. So the classroom is an excellent starting point. We also have accountability, right? Face-to-face -face conversation, which we do not have on social media. We can always step away from any conversation that takes place online. I could, for instance, now turn off our Zoom uh, call and then the conversation will be over. Whereas in person at the university, we have that kind of logistical structure already in place. Other suggestions can be there's so much going on in the tech world and especially here at Stanford, there's Jer Jeremy Balinson who's working on the metaverse. Metaverse, they're creating these spaces where people could encounter and talk to one another. Again, this is virtual though. So that could be one of the ways in which people can find a way back to, mm. the mo to their own selves, right? And uh, there's been a recent publication here at Stanford again about generative I, uh, I agents. These are interactive simulacra of human behavior, they call them. So how about we use technology to, again, like uh, Hansel and Gretel, find the way uh, back <laughs> home? Fascinating. Um, all of this reminds me of a metaphor that popped up 20 years ago or more earlier in the, in the history of machine thinking. But it was the picture of the horse facing a John Deere tractor in 
the earlier part of the 20th century. The horse was facing the eclipse of its species as to usefulness, threatened by machines that could plow faster, better, cheaper, and that in the AI discussion, we are the horses. What, what, what force does that, that metaphor have today, that we're looking at our own, our own destroyer, and that we made our own destroyer? I'd just like to go back to saying that I don't think that we should use technology to create spaces for thinking. Things are really quite simple, Chris. I try to tell the president of Stanford, that, you know, Stanford puts all these millions of dollars. It gives millions of dollars, for mm -hmm. example, to the Humanities Center so that a handful, <laughs> a handful of, of scholars and graduate students can go there and have a very cushy year doing their research in their offices and their lunches and their thing and their little conferences. It's all, all very genteel. And, you know, Anna is laughing at me because she's a fellow at the Humanities <laughs> Center. But I said, you know, if you want to really improve the humanities at Stanford, you create a coffee house in the middle of campus right. where you have really mm. good coffee, mm -hmm. you have a nice environment. The classroom is a great idea, but it's for privileged few. My experience of teaching adults in the continuing studies courses on Dante in the class or whatever, uh, it's amazing to me how retired people are still full of youthful enthusiasm to learn and to discuss and to and to um, have a form in which uh, is very classroom-like. Mm -hmm. And why can't we create a lot more courses yeah. that don't yeah. necessarily have to be dependent on the university? I I don't think we need high tech for the most basic, simple human uh, mm -hmm. needs for conviviality and fellowship. I agree with that, Robert. However, that would require also a fundamental retraining of the American mentality. I mean, what, we're, what, what you were just proposing is pretty much how we live right in the south of Europe. That is, right. that is our mode of interacting, always being outside together, always being at some kind of pub or some kind of coffee shop. However, in the United States, there is simply a lack of trust in your next, right? It could so be, how can we but all these people are, are just looking how to make a fortune on mm -hmm. the new technology. Mm -hmm. You're not going to make any money by these proposals exactly. because it's not yep. going to generate any uh, kind of surplus capital. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the proposals are very simple, but we're impotent mm -hmm. because we're not promising people to make a lot of money through the mm -hmm. uh, commercialization. I was going to say, ha have we asked GPT to this point, what it observes about capitalism? It would well, probably recite Marx. I think we have a lot to learn from uh, the global south. We have a lot to learn from the Mediterranean. We have to turn to cultures where individualism and community coexist, and that's possible. This is something that, for instance, I feel like in the United States seems almost like a contradiction, right? You cannot have indiv individualism and uh, community at the same time. Uh, remind us, before we're done, what do each of you, in order, hold as the essential secret or test of our humanness? What is the definition of victory in this struggle with, with the inhuman or the non-human or the anti-human? Well, <clears throat> I've just read and reviewed a very interesting book by uh, philosopher Kostika Bradatan, Romania. It's called In Praise of Failure. <laughs> And it's a philosophy of failure. And I would, I'm tempted, having you know, read that book recently, to say that the experience of failure and the way that it is humanized, psychologized, the way it, it, it runs through the entire human psyche, to that that is the, that's what returns us to our essential fallible humanity. Anna, you were talking about... Mm -hmm thinking as being fallible, but so much of the, um, the experience of being human is an experience of failure, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that you're a loser. Again, in America, you're a winner or you're a loser, yeah. but failure is something that I think uh, puts us in touch with ourselves better than any other thing. But Robert, um, the tech world has appropriated, unfortunately, even that because they say fail better. And that's a quote from Samuel Beckett. Mm -hmm. And they keep distorting the quote right. because they say fail better, 
fail again, but it's all a kind of prelude to winning, mm. to, to a kind of success. Even failure that's has been marketed. The, that's not the kind of uh, mm-hmm. message that you have brought it on, you know, promoting. Absolutely. The quote by Beckett is much more bleak about failure. <laughs> what we do, our bread and butter literature is being so misappropriated by uh, the tech world. This is what Socrates taught us. The word, the written word on which ChatGPT is also based is unreliable in the sense that it can be appropriated, it can be misquoted, and this is what is happening currently, right, to our to our field. The word the word being what, Anna? Well, the word, just the written world, there is a criticism in, in philosophy and literature of how Western society at a certain point transitioned from oral, uh, from an emphasis on oral interactions to the written world. And already Socrates, through Plato, criticizes that. He says that thinking cannot happen in writing. It has to happen in direct interactions, right? But we started wow. writing down everything, so we externalized our ability to think onto other devices. So currently, this is why we cannot have a conversation, because we have lost the capacity to Uh, look inwards into ourselves and abstractly think about the issues that are of concern to us. That's one point on which I would have to disagree with you. I've got to push back, Anna, and maybe you want it too, Robert. Um, I grew up on the notion, James Reston wrote it once in the New York Times, when his newspaper was on strike, he was writing for the syndicate, but he couldn't read himself in the paper. And he lamented, how can I know what I think if I can't read what I write? We've all had that experience. You thought you had an idea, you couldn't get a sentence out of it. And I've taught enough writing to see that everybody goes through that. It's a wonderful discipline to sit and squirm in your chair until you discover whether it works on paper. You guys would, for some students, abolish writing for a whole year, even teachers. Why? That was my proposal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I disagree with Anna on... Not so much because you have to write something in order to know what you're thinking. You can also speak something and know exactly. what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. I think the great blessing of writing is that it opens up the conversation to transgenerationally. Mm-hmm. So if we were to follow Plato's um, sort of strictures on writing, we would never be able to carry on a conversation with Plato himself. It's mm-hmm. only thanks to the fact that he wrote his dialogues that we, that he's become an interlocutor. And all these voices that fill our libraries and our bookshelves at home are voices that come to us from the dead, from the un- underworld, in the medium of writing. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I, I'm not sure that writing is hostile to th- to thought as such. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that it should be secondary to thought. It shouldn't be the primary way in which we communicate. Also, a little anecdote, again, as I mentioned before, we're both Southern Europeans in a way. Um, I spend a lot of time in Italy, specifically in Sicily. We all mostly communicate through voice messages, something that, for mm. instance, in America, people rarely do. But people love to just record their voices and send a voice message <laughs> to the other instead of texting, right? So this is another kind of the oral uh, showing its little head, right, from the world of, uh, of graphocentrism, if we right. can call it that, right? Well, we radio people like the sound of the human voice, too, and it's subtlety. It's a little bit like thinking. It's as endlessly nuanced and, besides that, fun. Just, just to give you another anecdote, I, uh, Pythagoras was famous for uh, lecturing with a piece of cloth Uh, like a screen in front of him so that the students couldn't see him because he thought that if they just hear his voice, if they just heard his voice, that they will learn better, right? Right. We should try that with a podcast, of course. (laughs) Anna and Robert, you both speak with some concern about the present generation growing up under terrific stress in one frame, but also very comfortable, very assured, very confident. How do you rate the capacity of this generation, the mental capabilities to to deal with the seduction and power of AI. Without a doubt, the current generation is dealing with a, with a level of overstimulation uh, that none of us, I think not even myself, growing up in rural in the rural Balkans experienced, right? So they have to deal with a lot. At the same time, again, the students that I meet that are now 18, 19 years old are, are extremely brilliant people, and they're very worldly, but in a very disembodied way, if I can say that in that sense. It's all very much, um, the body is not at stake. Inter, interpersonal um, relationships are not at stake. 
there is, of course, a fear there, right, of touching the other, which is, you know, the result of uh, bad practices in the, in the past. But we should try to find a way to bring people together in small spaces, right, w- develop a kind of trust with the other. Now, some people, right, uh, have suggested even after the show that Robert and I did that maybe yoga, meditation are one of those ways to bring people together. Um, and, of course, these are wonderful resources. However, I don't see... I think that the word mindfulness is is uh, misapplied in, in in terms of these practices. These practices serve detachment to empty the mind of all the overwhelming stimuli that are reaching us through the media and social media every day. What we need perhaps is a return to reading, right? To sitting down and just reading a novel from beginning to end. I have met a lot of tech people around here who have enthusiastically told me how in the past year they've read 200 books. I was amazed. I was thinking, oh my God, I've arrived in the Mecca of literature. And then in the second moment, they will specify that they read books on Blinkist, which is an app that summarizes the plot of a novel, right? So is that what we're going to move on forward as a civilization? I don't think so. Is this generation ready, Robert? I'm not sure. The ethics of care, you know, when you speak about self-care or le souci de soi, as Michel Foucault called it, the, the, uh, the curation of the self, which he saw as part of ancient schools of philosophy, you know, cultivating the good life. I think self-cultivation has a role to play, a a big role to play, but the most therapeutic form of care is the care for something which is not yourself, I think. Mm -hmm. That's where I think the gardening ethic has something to teach us, is that when you put all your concern in nourishing the growth of something that is in your little plot of land, or if you're every parent probably has that same experience or you know we need to get away from this kind of overweening self-love that i was Mm -hmm. referring to Mm -hmm. earlier and caring for something that's not yourself i think is one way to begin have we spoken enough about the virtues of the value of solitude and can gpt promote thoughtful solitude that can be some of our greatest moments as of old, you like to quote Wallace Stevens. He wrote that poem. Title of the poem was, The house was quiet and the world was calm. The reader became the book and summer night was like the consciousness of being the book. What Virginia Woolf called a room of one's own. Yeah. You don't even need a room of one's own. Mm-hmm. You need a, you know, a, a little chair in the library. Again, the, it, the, these things are easily addressed without always appealing to the utility value of technology. Absolutely. Yeah. The whole system is geared to always look to technology to promote our own human uh, advancement and enhancement. Mm-hmm. But we don't need technology for that purpose. I completely agree. But it's yeah. not going to help the economy if we can do without the technology. Yeah. Because it's on a rigged mm. system. Exactly. Thinking which requires solitude, is entirely unmarketable. There is no immediate result. It's a lifelong process of learning and practicing solitude, whereas loneliness, loneliness is marketable. A huge market for loneliness. Capitalism loves loneliness because it atomizes the individual and therefore makes the individual all the more targetable. Whereas when you have community and social collective and fellowship, you don't have all those needs. Which reminds me of that movie, Her. Hard to believe that was 10 years ago. I'm wondering now, did it scare us enough? Perhaps because we underestimate the capacity of human beings to love. We are capable of loving anything as long as it talks to us, right? Because we can do that. That's because we love ourselves. (laughs) But this is also very, very subject to manipulation, right? Knowing that we have that kind of capacity we can be seduced, right, by the mimetic desire into loving things that are actually not good for us. There are, I think, three movies that seem to be central to to the situation that we're going through right now. One is Her, then the other one would be the show Westworld, which was groundbreaking for my generation, at least, when it came out, and that predicts sentient artificial intelligence, embodied artificial intelligence. And there's another
another one that recently uh, I taught also at one of my classes. It's a film called The Sound of Metal. It's about a uh, otherwise abled musician who is a drummer and he loses his hearing. And uh, throughout the film, he is basically taught by his deaf community to not try to use technology to repair his hearing, but simply to sit still, to learn how to sit with a piece of paper and a pen at a table and come back to himself, so to say, right? Mm. Uh, that was a happy ending. It was, absolutely. <laughs> Chris, I wanted to say about her, yep. it, when, when it was 10, 10 years ago, this technology hadn't existed yet, so it fell into the genre of a kind of futuristic, near-futuristic, nevertheless futuristic scenario, and that's very interesting, but there's been all sorts of sci- sci-fi visions of a future dystopia, and you're right. Ten years later, that movie, which I, I've taught and which didn't don't really like because I can't I don't like that male actor. I don't, don't remember his name. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Yes. Yes. I, but but it's prophetic in retrospect. It's exactly the kind of world we're entering into where we're going to be making choices very soon about whether to have real partners or virtual partners. Mm. And if someone can talk to you intimately and flatteringly so that you fall in love with that voice right. because you're really fall it's this with is narcissus and echo. That's the mirror. Ovid myth. did not put echo into the narcissus myth for nothing. <laughs> she is like the the audio version of the of the visual doubling of Narcissus, who sees his image in the water, and and she uh, that voice is almost like an echo voice for mm-hmm. for the actor in that movie, and of course we're open to seduction as long as right. we're as we're, long as it mirrors ourselves as long as it mirrors us exactly. You have intensified all the questions about AI just by adding little philosophy and a whole lot of literature. Literature knows us better than we know ourselves. <laughs> That's We have to begin with that tenet of faith mm-hmm. that every time I open a work of literature, you know, a, a, a serious one, I, I say, how is it possible that this book knows me better than I know myself? It's an indispensable source. I don't call it a resource. I call it an indispensable source of self-knowledge. Agreed. Since human nature is a constantly moving target, literature seems to be the only genre out there that can keep pace with human nature. And this is where we can see ourselves in the best way possible. Anna Ilyevska and Robert Pogue Harrison, such a pleasure to be thinking about chatbot at a philosophical level. What would Sophocles have said? You've given us the answer. Thank you so much for the conversation and uh, let's do it again. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Take care. For the wide range of cultural conversations with Robert Hogue Harrison, look for his show, Entitled Opinions, wherever you go for podcasts. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasters. This week, check out the latest episode of The Lonely Palette in which Tamar Abishai takes us historically, visually, inside the scream of Norway's most famous painter, Edvard Munch. Listen at www.thelonelypalette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And see the full Hub & Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. 